the main event podcast episode 11 oh it's such a good week yo let's get it the main event yo it's your homeboy your main man jermaine parker creator and host of the main event hey thanks for tuning back in for another week of this buffoonery hey it's gonna be a uh, a great podcast i'm already gonna tell you if you don't have some time set aside uh this podcast is gonna last a little bit um, I've been actually off the air for a couple of weeks and, uh, actually recorded this podcast, uh, last week on my day off. Um, but after listening to it, I, I wanted to come back and make a more coherent and, uh, just a better show. I, I, it, it lasts an hour and a half, which is the longest podcast I've ever done. And I would imagine with me adding stuff to it over the past week, uh, it's even going to be a little bit longer uh, when it's all said and done. But it's all for a good cause um, because uh, what we're going to talk about today I think is really important. And so I want to give it the the attention and time that it deserves. So I'm not just going to you know stick to my normal hour format. I'm going to let it ride as long as it needs to ride. So anyway, welcome back. Thanks to everybody for tuning in and for being a part of the podcast. I love your feedback and all your kind words and stuff. Um, uh, you can uh, you can go to the website, www.themaineventpodcast.com. That's M-A-I-N-E, main event podcast.com. And uh, there you can check out all the episodes. There's a bio on me. Um, I actually got my military bio linked in uh, one of the about pages and you can see some of me and my history there and, uh, why I think I qualify a little bit for leadership and talking about that. Um, and, uh, you can also, it links to my Instagram. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter, Twitter, the main event. Um, and on, uh, <laughs> I have a brain fart on. Uh, Facebook uh, as well. So there's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All three platforms plus the website. They all kind of interconnect to each other and got links and stuff. So if you can't find me on one, look for the other and uh, hopefully we'll lead you. But hopefully um, you guys are enjoying the podcast and it's been really fun for you because it's been really fun for me. I really, really enjoy it and I really appreciate everybody uh, for giving me their time and, uh, leave me a little ear and stuff. So anyway, let's, uh, 
let's move on. It's uh like I say, it's been a, a couple weeks and not intentionally. Uh I got a little bit of break from Cali. I'm back out in Cali now and uh still doing the firefighting thing. Um I usually if you go on my Twitter there's some some videos of us dropping and stuff, but if you want some better videos, you need to go check out my boy uh Drew. He's over at Zulu Jumper on Twitter. He's got a lot of his videos up there. A lot of those videos were hitting like fifty K plus uh views. Uh especially when uh they were down on the Holy Fire uh when I was back home in North Carolina. Um uh, just just a lot of people down there and so He's getting a lot of views on his Twitter, so go follow him. He's got good stuff out there, real good stuff out there. Um, so, like I say, there's a lot that's happened, and so I'm going to start with some highlights, you know, and, you know, we'll talk about well, what you talking about. What you talking about? What you talking about? What you talking about? What you talking about, Willis? Man, what you talking about, Willis? What has been going on? Hey, uh, I want to start off. By uh, acknowledging Aretha Franklin, um, may she rest in peace. Uh, I love Aretha. Uh, I really do. She's queen of soul. Uh, just a breathtaking woman. And um, she actually, uh, some people really know me. Uh, you know one of my favorite movies. And she actually starred in one of my favorite movies. Say starred. She had a uh, she had a scene in one of my favorite movies and stuff, and she really stole the scene. In fact, you know what? Let me share it with you. We got two hunkies out there dressed like Hasidic diamond merchants. Say what? They look like they're from the CIA or something. What they want to eat? The tall one wants white bread, toast, dry with nothing on it. Elwood. And the other one wants four whole fried chickens and a coke. And Jake shit the blues brother. You know what? I have absolutely no idea why I thought that that was so Hello. funny, but uh, <laughs> just her describing what the Blues Bros wanted to eat, that whole scene and stuff. And uh, but man, could the woman sing? But I'm the man, and you are the woman, and I'll make the decision concerning my life. You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman! You better think. I could keep going with that. You know, this is actually why I need to get my camera set up so y'all can see me um, over here dancing and stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, she's one of the great ones. Uh, losing a lot of people this year, but uh, rest in peace to Aretha. And uh, because I, I took so long to get this podcast together, uh, we actually had another death this past weekend. Uh, Senator uh, John McCain, um, he passed. And I think it's a... Uh, it's important to acknowledge uh, people like uh, Senator McCain. Um, and I, I'll start by saying I did not agree with him politically. I did not. But as a as a, uh, as a a military member, I absolutely 
uh, admired his service. Uh, the man spent uh, over five years as a uh, prisoner of war. And um, the things that he was made to endure, and and I know that that shaped him and his policies and his politics and stuff. And so, you know, I, I see a lot of people that put um, some negative stuff out about him. And, you know, I think that really you should just uh, honor a life, you know, life short. And, I mean, there are no more arguments to be had with uh, Senator McCain. Uh, he lived his life. Um, I respected the fact that he understood that he was uh, fallible. And that uh, he had some regrets about his life, but he was happy with what he had done. Um, and, you know, I, this is the same Senator McCain. I mean, I don't forget anything. I mean, I, he's McCain voted against the Martin Luther King holiday. He voted for this tax bill. I don't agree with it. Like I say, um, with all that being said, uh, I still respect the man. Um for what he tried to do and what he tried and what he wanted to stand for. Um, and I think it really kind of is going to be the underlining tone for the podcast today is that we understand that just because we don't share the same opinions and views and thoughts on things doesn't make us necessarily enemies. And it definitely doesn't make us less American, uh, or less patriotic or, less than any uh because of those things you know unfortunately there are things that went on and happened in the country that uh right now that uh keep us from seeing that point um you know every week every week i'm seeing new stories and new videos and stuff uh, a lot of those uh where uh, white people are recording and weaponize or white people are weaponizing the police against black people, people of color, and they're being recorded. Um, I, I think for us in this era, um, the weekly, if not daily, um, reminder of that, uh, because of the way that our, our internet and our social media and, and the fact that every phone's a camera. And so there, every person is a, is a reporter and a commentator, um, for what's going on in society. We just see more and more of it. Um, but kind of, um, my refrain for today in our discussion is going to be context. Things by themselves may seem one way, um, but you really have to put them in context. And that's the reason I re-recorded the show because I, I, I wanted to make sure that I properly framed and, and used the context properly um, for what we're going to talk about today. And so, like, I've been real coy, but what I really want to talk about today was racism in America. That's really the gist of it and how that affects um, uh, our relationships and our perceptions about things in America. And just why that's important. Um, and for a lot of people to go, hey, man, I thought your podcast was about leadership. It is. And if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have the privilege, hopefully, if you're lucky, uh, to lead a diverse group of people. And empathy is one of those kind of things that as a leader you got to have. 
But if you don't understand or you don't have the proper context for things, you may dismiss or you may say things um, that your uh, workers or even the people you provide services to um, may be upset by. And you're like, well, I don't I don't understand. Um, you know, there's been so many uh, instances of what I was talking about earlier. And man, I can't name them all. Um, I mean, just this year, we started back um, uh, real heavy with discussion about the two young black men in Starbucks that the uh, they were had the police called on them because they were waiting for a client. Um, then there was a young man in Oakland who was barbecuing and had a woman call the police on him and his friends. There was recently two young men that were stopped and harassed by the police. The police actually had the guns drawn on them, and the young man um, yelled back to the police. They had the hands out of the car and like, well, why'd you stop us? Because they hadn't done anything. And they said, because you're not white. Now, the police chief actually said that that wasn't true, but it's 2018, and there was a video, and they actually said that. But it's context. If me and the officer are standing outside and he's talking to me, and I go, man, why are you asking me? He goes, man, because you ain't white. And we go, ha, 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 But if you got your gun drawn on me and you say that, the context of that is not great. And um, so for, for leaders, we have to understand that some of our jokes and some of the things that you may be saying, they're not great. And so what I really want to do is I want to – provide some history um, for context um, because again when we look at 2018 and things are going on um, you know politically the NFL protests are being brought up again um, and so people are like you know well why they're kneeling and it's disrespectful to the flag and stuff like that I and mean, it's and at this point, if you understand why people are kneeling and stuff, it's willful, willful ignorance. Um, Colin Kaepernick has explained it over again. I've talked about it on this podcast before. And uh, not that uh, every week uh, my aim is to talk about social injustice and stuff, but it happens so much. And because I am a black man and a father of black children, um, it really means something to me. And so I decided I wanted to take this whole episode and kind of talk about it and address it, you know, so, you know, so we, you know, answer some questions like why we kneel, um, you know, why do people feel like they need to call the police on black and brown people just for living and doing things that everybody else is afforded the opportunity to do? Um, you know, talk about wh why is it, why do some people think it's okay to say the n-word because you catch a lot of people on this tape there was a guy um that followed this guy home um and he was in his work truck <laughs> so when he was being recorded and he's like kids kept saying the n-word and i know a lot of people just like well, I don't know. Hey, we're gonna talk about that um where that came from and all that and but you know is there really racism in america 
you know, all things in context. So that's actually a big question uh, I've heard, you know, because a lot of people say, is racism dead? And my simple answer to that is, fuck no, it's not dead. Racism has not even had a fucking run any nose. It's never been sick. It's never been slowed down. It's never been fucking hobbled. It is alive and fucking well, living primarily in this country. Context as to why that is. Um, I know a lot of people want to say, but what about Obama? And I, to them, I go, well, what about Obama? Um, people still question whether or not he was even an American citizen. And let's not forget the uh, the uh, generous outpouring racism that was shown towards him and his family. So people want to say, well, we elected a black president. Racism, racism must be dead. So far from the truth. And I think, if anything, uh, this last... Uh, couple uh last year and a half without him in office has told us that actually it's on the rise if anything racism is actually getting stronger in our country and um not weaker so i look at that and i'm left to go well maybe if we can go back and let's have this honest and frank conversation about um, our history in this country. And I, I know history is boring. And uh, quite honestly, between me and you, I miss getting my information from uh, Saturday morning cartoons. They were the best. Uh, that's where I got my say no to drugs and don't be a bully, you know, all that stuff. And uh, one of my favorite uh, things uh, for learning on Saturday morning was Schoolhouse Rock. Had the best tunes and stuff. And you know what? I think we should schoolhouse rock this a little bit. We're going to start back with slavery. And we're not going to go all the way back into all the details. I think we can all universally agree that it was a bad thing and it was fucked up. And, uh, you know, murder, rape, separate families and stuff, you know, was horrible. Um, But we'll start at the end of it and work our way forward. And we'll we'll use it for a little context, but let's schoolhouse rocket. I am a slave. Yes, I'm only a slave. They'll place my body in an unmarked grave in these Confederate days. It's kind of hard to lift every voice singing while worrying about how low the sweet chariots are swinging. I could swing from a tree, but hey, oh, I hope and pray they don't kill me today. I'm still just a slave. If the Emancipation Proclamation was passed in 1863, why weren't you free until 1865? Well, it took two years for the Civil War to end. Oh, so you were free when the war ended? Nah, not for two more months because Texas landowners wanted another harvest. That's not cool. None of it was cool. But an army ship arrived on June 19th, 1865 and announced we were free. That's why we celebrate Juneteenth. I am a slave in the home of the brave, a product of the triangular trade. Pardon my ways if I'm nervous or the slightest bit skittish. In the presence of the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, or British, they kept me in colonial chains. Tell me how to persuade them to chill or to save me if still I'm a slave. 
Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for The Roots. Uh, one of my favorite uh, bands. And uh, that was from a uh, a clip for the uh, ABC television show, Blackish, uh, used without the permission. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, that was actually an uh, episode where they were talking about Juneteenth and why black people celebrate Juneteenth. And so that was kind of the deal. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was actually handed down in January, well, 1 January, 1863. And um, so 1863 had the Emancipation Proclamation, and the uh, 13th Amendment was ratified in 1865, and the 14th, 15th, uh, 65, 67. Um, but that was a hundred and fifty three years ago, the end of slavery. And so for context, um, I was born in nineteen seventy five. My mom was born I know exactly when, but I'm not gonna tell you for her, uh the early fifties. Uh her mom, the nineteen twenties, late nineteen nineteen seventeen, somewhere around there, and then uh her mom would have been in, in around like eighteen eighties. And that's just a guess because I don't know. Um, but that seems very uh, reasonable. Um, so that would have been like 20 years after um, uh, black people were free in this country. And so, you know, honestly, we're really talking about four, maybe five generations. Um, or two 80-year-olds. There was somebody born in 1863, and they lived to the ripe age of 80 years old, and somebody was born the next day, and they would be alive till today. So two lifespans, four, maybe five generations, is not really a long time. Um, so when we, we talk about racism in this country and stuff, we're not covering a long period of time for people and their ideas um, uh, the change and that's one of the things you have to understand too is that laws don't change the way people think if you didn't believe in abortion I doubt Roe versus Wade changed your mind if you were against gay marriage I doubt the law that says gay marriage um, is legal changed your mind Laws don't change hearts. They try to change behaviors, but they don't change hearts. And honestly, uh, there are different reasons why uh, laws are enacted. And um, read you a little bit of history, but the the whole thing about ending slavery it really had less to do with the morality of the North than it did with the political gain that the South, as they were trying to expand West and trying to expand the slave states less to do with morality everything to do with politics and money and power um so for context so we had the end of slavery in 1863 and uh then we adopted the uh 13 14 and 15th amendment um we'll talk about what it was to be freed what did that really mean in 1863?
just because the slaves had been freed, it didn't mean that they were going to have equal rights. After the Civil War, you had formerly enslaved Americans that were just really set out to fend on their own. They had been separated from their families. They didn't have jobs for the most part. They did not know how to read and write. African Americans had to begin to work hard just to become citizens of this country. They needed to be educated. They needed to be given health care. And most importantly, they needed jobs. Uh, and what skills do they have for the jobs that might be there? The fate of African Americans was further complicated by the fact that in the border states of Maryland, Delaware, Missouri, and Kentucky, slavery was still technically legal. As Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation only applied to the states that were at war with the Union, in order to abolish slavery once and for all, and to begin granting the benefits of full citizenship to persons of color, it would be necessary to amend the U.S. Constitution. And not with just one amendment, but three. Ratified on December 6, 1865, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery throughout the United States and its territories. It also eliminated the clause in the Constitution that counted slaves as three-fifths of a person. But still, another amendment was required, one that clarified that former slaves were entitled to American citizenship. The 14th Amendment is necessary because the Dred Scott decision had said that African Americans were not citizens of the United States. And so the 14th Amendment makes sure that we do have citizenship and that we have due process. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Clip cut short, but that's what she was saying. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, so there you go. Um, so part of our history lesson. So we, we start back and we understand that slavery was over in 1863. Uh, um, but what did that really mean? It really meant that uh, African-Americans were thrown out um, with nothing, absolutely nothing. And so that was a big deal about why, uh, when you hear the 40 acres and a mule, um, that's what that was about. That's exactly what that was about Um, because blacks had been given freedom but they had been given freedom to starve. I mean, that's just not my opinion. You can actually listen to Dr. King. We'll, we'll listen to him and his opinion. Stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. And uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19, I mean, 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. 
and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. So, Reconstruction in the South, um, a lot of people were understandably upset that they had lost their property. And as you can understand, there was not really an outpouring of love and sympathy for black people. Um, so, we're, we're just going to go ahead and establish that the 1800s up to the 1900s were still not a great time to be a black person in this country. Um, and we're just going to do it period by period because I want you to understand, one, one it wasn't that long ago. Two, uh, we're looking at how this country uh, perceived and treated black people. And so, you know, that was King speaking in, in 1960 about this. But he was really speaking for less than 100 years ago. And what he was really talking about, too, that was important uh, was that, you know, again, there were no reparations. There were no, you know, and people go, well, why did they need reparations? Or that wasn't even really uh, a thing. Well, it was because, as King points out, um, that was the uh, time period, same time period when they were giving away land out west. So it wasn't that um, there wasn't uh, available land to give um, and it wasn't that um, they didn't have the means to uh, provide reparations for over 200 years of free work, um, almost 300 years of it. And um, But that goes back to the, the end of slavery was not a morality thing it was a political thing, and once that had been uh, accomplished, um, the people that were supposed to benefit from it didn't. So when you look at um, four generations ago, um, my mom's grandfather, grandmother, they didn't have anything. It did not stop people from trying to go and um, uh, do things. Uh, remember that uh, in the South, um, a uh, black man reading was punishable or black person reading was punishable by death. Um, so you're, you're talking about 1863 starting with nothing, no education, no, no real skills and stuff. And yeah, there were people who were up north, uh, like Frederick Douglass. Um, there was your Harriet Tubbett, uh, uh, but there, there was not a proliferation of that within the race here in America. And so, um, they were a lot of people, 
my grandfather actually was still a sharecropper in North Carolina. And um, he um, didn't have a, you know, I think a lot of times when we, we think about society, for a lot of us, it's in the concept of major uh, cities and population centers. Uh, it's actually why there was a great migration from the south to the north, because there were just more industrial. There were more opportunities and more people who were willing to give black people an opportunity uh, that way. But everybody couldn't go, and, there, and, and a lot of people stayed and stuff. <clears throat> and so black people migrated to the cities, and those that did stay, they stayed in the Reconstruction South. And um, was we were talking about laws before. And that's the thing, too. Even today, we talk about laws, but we need to follow the law. Laws are written by men. Slavery was a law. Uh, women couldn't vote. There was a law. You know, all these things were man-made laws. Laws are not given to us. Um, you know, it's, it's not the Ten Commandments. Um, you, you you can't sit there and go, well, it's the law, and that's the end of it. Um, that's the reason that we re-examine and we, we challenge the way that we think every day so that laws can be changed um, that don't make any sense. Um, but Reconstruction itself actually meant more hostility and more laws. Um, in fact, they created new laws because slavery was illegal. Uh, they decided they needed new laws. And so let's learn about these laws, the Jim Crow laws. Hey, Vision Chasers, it's Dr. Bird here with another social studies lesson for you today. Today, I'm actually going to answer an email question from David in Augusta, Georgia. And David's question is, what were the Jim Crow laws? So, David, here we go. Once Reconstruction ended, the people who were in charge of the South before the Civil War slowly started to regain power. And these people were not happy that their slaves were now freedmen. And so they began to pass a number of laws known as the Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow was the name of a popular minstrel show. And a minstrel show was a performance that made fun of black people. And on your screen right now, you're seeing an example of a minstrel show from the 1940s. The Jim Crow laws were designed to isolate African-Americans and place them in an inferior position compared to white people. This was the beginning of segregation in the post-Civil War South. In many Southern churches, people were taught that whites were the chosen people and that blacks were cursed. Here's some examples of Jim Crow laws. A black male and a white male could not shake hands because it implied that both were socially equal. Blacks and whites were not supposed to eat together. Now, if they did eat together, whites were to be served first and some sort of partition was to be placed between them. And under no circumstances was a black male to offer to light a cigarette of a white female. Whites did not use courtesy titles of respect when referring to blacks. For example, Mr., Mrs., Miss, Sir, or Ma'am. Instead, black people were called by their first name or some sort of derogatory term. White motorists had the right of way at all intersections. And lastly, if a black person rode in a car driven by a white person, 
the black person had to sit in the back seat or the back of a truck. Although it is perfectly clear that this is a violation of civil rights, the Supreme Court ruled the Jim Crow laws were constitutional in the Plessy versus Ferguson decision of 1896. Now, it wouldn't be until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s that the Jim Crow laws would be recognized as illegal. Well, that's our social studies lesson for the day. Please check the Vision Chasers website for more tips and tools to help you along the way. And so Jim Crow um, was another set of laws, again, held up in uh, 1893 by Supreme Court. It's being completely legal. Um, in fact, you can, uh, when I talk about how short of a time ago this was, um, you know, in talks with my mother growing up in the South in rural North Carolina and my grandfather being a sharecropper and stuff, um, he would have to address young white boys as sir, but they would just call him by his name. It was a grown man who had to call eight-year-old, seven-year-old, or younger white boy. If they could talk, he had to call him sir. Um, it's not that long ago. We, um, we, we, we talk about this and we say a hundred years later after 1863, we're finally getting around to civil rights. Again, laws don't change hearts or attitudes. They're meant to deter behavior. So free men were not treated like free men. And we had a set of laws that were enacted to help police and maintain the position of black people within American society. And of course, this is all again, rolling back into the, the big question of racism and how race relates in America. So when we talk about the law and stuff, we have to we had to address law enforcement. Um, one of the things in the South, in Tennessee, the KKK was founded, and it was founded uh, with the intention of making sure that the purity of the, right, the white race wasn't uh, wasn't sullied by the presence of this new black threat of free black men and women. And the KKK, uh, the members of the KKK were judges, lawyers, policemen. Um, there were other symbols in the South to make sure that's why when we talk about the, the conversation in present day, when we talk about Confederate statues that are in the South and stuff, those were placed there. Um, there, and there are twofold reasons. I'm not ignorant to the fact that the daughters of the Confederates, um, those men who fought in the Confederacy, because remember that was only 40 years prior. Most of those uh, monuments came in 1900 and stuff. The daughters of the Confederates were, uh, trying to memorialize their fathers, but also it symbols that uh, Reconstruction, and even though we lost the war, um, we didn't lose the fight. Um, just recently in, in the headlines, Silent Sam, a uh, Confederate uh, monument on the uh, campus of Chapel Hill, which I believe should have been taken down a long time ago, 
was actually toppled and vandalized. Um, it's up there by law and it'll be put back up. Um, and, um, and again, not all laws are just just listen to laws that we're talking about here, um, that allow for this kind of behavior. But even in the, um, if you look at silent Sam, because you know, when people talk about Confederates and I'm from the South, I hear it all because people love to talk about their heritage, <laughs> love, but they ignore, they don't want to talk about all of it. But, um, you know, granddaddy fought in a war and I'm like, your granddaddy was great. Granddaddy was a, uh, traitor to the United States. Um, and sure. Uh, if you want to simplify it to, he fought for his brothers and stuff, but, uh, so did the Germans. Uh, so, so did the Russians, um, everybody fights for their own people and their own ideals and stuff. Uh, it doesn't particularly make them right or on the right side of history. Um, but even when that, uh, statue of Silas Sam was being put up, if you have any doubts, uh, when the speakers was, uh, reminiscing about beating a black winch for daring to insult a white woman, um, and he did it in front of some Union soldiers and uh, because the black woman uh, thought that she could be protected. But to last, no, uh, he talks about and just read. I mean, this is not me. Just go read. Uh, you can Google Silent Sam and his dedication and you can read about him uh, bragging about beating the uh, black winch and within an inch of her life uh, because black lives didn't matter. Um, and that's a kind of reoccurring theme through slavery and even after slavery. And so even then when there were union soldiers, there, protectors, police, um, uh, black people were still allowed to be treated, uh, badly. You know, one of the things that when we talk about police brutality and stuff and what the effect is of that, and this all really plays in together with the history it's just one big thing altogether. Um, for context, understand this, that in the early 1900s, there were a lot of lynchings in the South. And when you look at the number of lynchings, in fact, there's a memorial now. Um, I believe it's in Mississippi. And I, you know, I, I didn't even think to, to look that up, but I'll get that information out. Uh, probably put it on the website and a link to it. Um, but there's a memorial uh, about lynchings and stuff. And when you actually look at the numbers per year, like say per state of lynchings and stuff, um, I believe it's like Mississippi. I was looking at it. It didn't really get, it wasn't like it was hundreds and hundreds of lynchings. And that's because a lynching was number one. It was a public event. Um, it was a Sunday picnic uh, let's go hang a nigger event. It really was. Um, and it's important in this discourse when we're talking about black lives matter, when we're talking about police and when we're talking about the things that you're seeing today that I echo back to the past to draw these parallels and stuff. So with lynching, um, what happened was they brought the community out and they would, uh, torture, and kill and maim a black person. It might be 40 people in, in Mississippi um, that they did all year. But why is it important? 
even if the numbers aren't quote unquote high, because I don't really know what your numbers are. Um, but you know, they would use blow torches. Uh, um, just all kind of undescribable things, uh, with little children around, but it's because black people did not matter and they were not really human beings. They were things and they had been property. And when they are, people are turned to things and their, uh, their humanity is stripped from them and stuff. That's why you're allowed to treat them certain ways because you don't view them as equals. And the lynchings were effective because what it did was it wasn't just about that one person that lost their lives. It was the message that was gone, that was thrown out to the whole community that it could be you, your life does not matter and we could end it anytime that we want. When we fast forward and we have, police that murder unarmed nonviolent black people those are public lynchings that's exactly what they are it's your life does not matter you will not you will not receive justice there is no recourse for you your life doesn't matter that's why when you see uh <clears throat> nfl players kneeling and your first response is, is I'm offended because uh, they don't care about this country. Uh, I, I, w- I want you to focus in on the history of this country, how it's treated black people, and what those public lynchings mean, and that's what they're kneeling for. They are trying to bring awareness to a subject that is not dead. Again, like I said earlier, racism is not dead. Never had a red nose. Racism is fine. Strong, strong like bull. So we look at the early 1900s and stuff, um, and black people actually, despite all these hurdles that have been put in front of them, um, have started to do things like get educations, uh, become doctors, and trying to be recognized. But one of the things that they, they alluded was the official, because of these Jim Crow laws and stuff, the equality. And that led to the, well, we don't have to share the same space. Uh, every, as long as it's equal, we can be separate, but we all know that that's not how it really played out. Everything wasn't equal the facilities and stuff. They were not equal. And I know a lot of people are going, well, Jermaine, I mean, I, I mean, dude, you're a good guy. I like you and stuff. And I just don't get it. Why does everything have to be about race? Um, I'm going to play this clip of uh, James Baldwin. Um, go to YouTube and you can uh, you can find more clips of his and more of his stuff. But he was asked the same question. Why does it have to be about that? I would like to add someone to our group here. Uh, professor Paul Weiss, the Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale. Were you able to listen to the show backstage? I made, uh, a deal of it, but then I was behind the bus computer. Yes. So you heard only some of it. Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? I disagreed you... with a great deal of it. And, uh, of course, it's a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape 
or lack of ability, and the problem is to become a man. Well, what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles, the very, the very real danger of death thrown up by this society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes it or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a, a black scholar than I have with a white man who's against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or on religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself. You had to be able then to tell the intent of which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to be a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, Everybody. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know, as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That says a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never I seen. So, what James, uh, a lot to unpack in that, that little clip there, but um, what James was talking about was, and the point is like, why does everything have to be black and white? And so part of the reason I give you the context of the history of this country is, is not because black people want it to be about black and white. It's because there have been laws and institutions that have been set up that make it about your skin color. Even King said, you know, demonized for the, the color of your skin. Um, you know, even further back in history, if you talk about slavery in other places and stuff, the difference between American slavery and slavery around the world was slavery around the world was usually... Uh, uh, based on economics or uh, based on the fact that w war, you know, just simply people didn't like each other and they took over and uh, enslaved another race and stuff like that. Uh, American slavery took on a whole new thing when it made people things and took away their humanity and demonized them based solely on the color of their skin. That's why it was different. That's why it's a difference in when we talk about other groups that have come to this country and stuff and things they've had to overcome and stuff. 
um, and why when uh, black people hear things like um, the movements, other other equality movements are the same as with black people, one of the things that we say is that no, because ours is an extra layer because it's we're demonized for the color of skin. Like you can look at a black person, they're a black person. Um, you can't look at somebody in particular care and tell if they what their sexual orientation is. Um, you actually have to divulge that. Um, and so therein lies the ability for other people to coast through things without prejudice that black people cannot avoid. And, you know, uh, jumping back to today, when I hear people talk about, um, well, this is just something that people bring up to try to divide us. Um, I think it's silly to talk about factions group trying to divide America because I've seen no evidence that America was ever united. That's kind of James Baldwin's thing is that what are you talking about? I don't know uh, how most people feel about African-Americans, but I know how they're perceived and how they're treated by the media. I know how they're treated by banks. Um, I know how uh, the housing market treats them. I know how educationally. And I know when we come to our policing and stuff, how our neighborhoods are overly policed and our jails are overly populated with black people when we don't make up enough of a percentage of the population to justify our numbers in incarcerated um, situations. I know that. But black people are always the ones that are asked to be uh, chivalrous and stuff and civil uh, about the discourse when we talk about racism in America. And so when we got to, so, uh, when we, so we fast forward into the 1960s and stuff, a hundred years later after the end of slavery, um, trying to get Jim Crow laws overturned and stuff like that. Um, surely at that point, the, the majority of white people had changed their tune and they understood and they were for uh, civil rights. Or maybe they wouldn't. <laughs> Mrs. J.D. Milam, and I think this is the most ridiculous thing that has ever happened. The Negroes are just as free as we are. They have the same opportunity to work and to build their part of the town up just the same as we have. I, I just don't understand it and don't approve of it. I'm going to stand up for my right. Jim Knight with WALB Television News. Mm -hmm. We're soliciting the views of all many people on the Civil Rights Bill. Would you like to give us your views? Well, I think if they remain peaceful, it would be a lot better than perhaps the violence that would be concerned. Uh, well, of course, being a Southerner, I'm not for it at all. I see. And uh, I just don't know how it's going to turn out. I hope we don't have any trouble. We're soliciting opinions on the Civil Rights Bill. Would you like to give us yours? I'm sorry, but I don't think it's the time right now. I think they have equal rights, though. Thank you very much. Would you like to express your views? No, I don't think so. How about you? Nope. What I'd have to say wouldn't be fit to go on air. Thank you very much. I don't like it. I think you're just trying to put something on, on us that we don't want. I see. We ought to have a national election on it rather than just letting nine men tell us what we got to do. And how about you? I feel the same. Fine. Thank you very much. Well, I sure don't like it, that's for sure. I see. 
do you feel this will have any effect on your life directly? I imagine it will. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we might have niggers to live next door to us. Thank you. And wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> imagine that if they were right next door. Oh, God, what are we going to do? Uh, so, during the civil rights movement, uh, there was obviously people who were upset about the whole idea of equal rights for black people. I think for some people, it's sort of like the idea of giving their dogs equal rights. And it's not that people don't ever love dogs. People love dogs. But they just don't think they should marry and be able to vote and stuff like that. So, um, But that's why it's important when we talk about the time frame for this. This was just a hundred years after black people had been freed. Laws don't change opinions and hearts. They try to deter behavior. And so the hearts and opinions of people, not just in the South, I'm not just going to pick on the South. I'm from the South, and I understand it's still there, but I'm not just going to pick on the South, around the country, because, you know, as I've had the opportunity to drive from East Coast to West Coast and stuff, what I, I really know is that this this country of ours is humongous. And we're in a 50-50 split where 50% of our population live in urban centers and 50% of our population does not. So a lot of people, when they're discussing, there's half of the country who really doesn't doesn't know about diversity and stuff because they don't live in major population or near major population centers. Uh, that's why it's so important when we talk about media coverage of these things, when we hear these dog whistle things where we talk about, well, what about Chicago? What about Baltimore? What about D.C.? Urban centers that have a lot of black people in them. Um, how that tone uh, has a racist vibe to us because uh, you're not reporting a holistic view of black people or the black community. You know, and let's talk, I'll talk about Chicago very briefly and stuff. Uh, there's a high rate of crime in Chicago. Chicago is not the highest rate of crime in the country and stuff. Uh, do black people die there? Uh, and is there a lot of gun violence there? Absolutely. Um, Nobody else gets the label black on black uh, on race on race crime, but black people will get black on black crime and stuff. But if we're going to race race and all that, did you know in Chicago, 83% of crime committed against white people is committed by, drum roll, white people. So when you look at Chicago and you go, 90% of the crime out there is black on black crime, well, 83% is white on white crime. So if we're going to talk about crime, then we just need to talk about crime. Crime is proximity-based. Uh, generally speaking, people don't uh, drive across town. Um, the, the, we have no movie villains. There are super villains out there. People just don't. People, impoverished people, don't have resources. And if, they, if they're driven to crime and stuff, which is a whole nother conversation about um, why the crime rate is so high. But it's actually linked back to the fact that 100 years before, thrown out the streets with nothing. And... Um, it's not that the country didn't understand economic wealth. That's the reason that we opened up uh, free land uh, to other immigrants uh, to go claim land and stuff because we we understand economic base and how that's generational. Because remember, I'm only fourth generation from this. What land did I inherit? You know, when we listen to that clip, 
one of the things the women said was, well, they've got equal rights. They can go build up on their side of town. Well, what's our side of town? Because we were given nothing. Everything we had to get, we had to work for. Um, when you look at this whole idea of handouts and stuff like that, um, you, you really need to, in context, understand why there was need for support for black communities starting in 1863 and beyond and why that hasn't been around long enough and why that hasn't been a widespread focus within the community for the community and why when we talk about our neighborhoods and poverty and stuff, which leads to and uh, poverty and undereducation, which leads to crime, which are direct things that lead to crime and stuff, why that's more prevalent and why those are the things that we need to the underline the stuff of education and uh, wealth, living wage and stuff like that that we need to address, those will help crime. Um, but systematically, as we look at things, uh, these laws and stuff were put in place. So you go, well, Jermaine, hey, look, they did pass it. And um, King's a personal hero of mine. Uh, I love Muhammad Ali and, you know, all these guys and stuff. And uh, it's way different than what we're talking about uh, right now. And I would say, no, no, it's not. Guess who the director of the FBI called the most notorious liar in the country back in 1964? Go on. Oh, wait. It was Martin Luther King. Wait, what? But everybody loves Martin Luther King. People love him so much that he even gets his own national holiday. Most know Martin Luther King for his I Have a Dream speech, but that doesn't paint the whole picture. King didn't just preach a message of anti-racism. He also fought against U.S. imperialism abroad and income inequality domestically. He was seen as such a threat to power that Bobby Kennedy authorized the FBI to wiretap him for five years. Why did those in power want to monitor Martin Luther King? Well, the official reason was to see if he had any ties to the communists. But the FBI kept the wiretaps going even after they found nothing to suggest that King had any ties to the Soviet Union or the Communist Party. Instead, the FBI focused on King's private sex life in a failed attempt to discredit his radical message. It's easy to overlook how radical Martin Luther King's message was, even by today's standards. Listen to what he said about a universal basic income. One of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income, a guaranteed minimum income. Universal basic income is an idea that's gaining some traction these days, but it's still on the fringes of political discourse. He also pushed other ideas that few public figures would touch today, like a redistribution of wealth. And he called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. So it's no surprise that Martin Luther King was widely hated by people in power at the time. In 1963, John F. Kennedy said this about him. Martin Luther King is the king itself. Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, reportedly had these nice words to say about Martin Luther King. I'll just let you read it because there's no way I'm saying that on camera. No, I'm not saying it. I'm not, I'm not touching that. I'm not touching it. And this was the guy who signed the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act. I mean, think about what other people in the government must have been saying about him. The most infamous incident was the letter sent to Dr. King by the FBI in which they threatened to expose his sexual affairs unless he stepped aside. The letter has some truly insane passages, such as, Satan could not do more. What incredible evilness. It's all there on the record, your sexual orgies. Listen to yourself, you filthy, abnormal animal. But we should not assume that our government's surveillance of civil rights activists died when Martin Luther King was shot. 
The Black Panthers, the American Indian Movement, and even the women's rights movement were targeted by the FBI. In fact, targeted surveillance has continued right to the present. Earlier this year, The Intercept revealed that the Department of Homeland Security was monitoring Black Lives Matter protests. And the ACLU has revealed that police departments use data from social media to track black activists. So half a century after King's death, you'll hear things like this about Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. It's not that any life matters more than another. That's the whole message I think that Dr. King tried to present. And I think you'd be appalled by the notion that we're elevating some lives above others. No, that wasn't Dr. King's whole message. We've just conveniently forgot the stuff he said that would have made guys like Mike Huckabee very, very uncomfortable. 50 years from now, conservatives will celebrate the work of Black Lives Matter. For now, though, we're still letting government agencies target them with impunity while using Martin Luther King's name to chastise them. So, <laughs> for people who, uh, who talk about uh, today, uh, Colin Kaepernick, Black Lives Matter, um, will be the same people um, who sound like that 1964 clip I played. Um, and they will also be the same people that, oh, no, I supported him and everything he stood for. Um, I mean, this really is an opportunity it's a, in context. You know, so w- when it, we've, and I've had the discussions about uh, kneeling and the BLM, um, but for context, a lot of the things that they're talking about are not made up. We see them every day on the news. Um, and it's not because they're recurring more. It's simply because, again, technology allows us to catch up um, and basically uh, present life that a lot of black people deal with all the time. I just don't know anyone that's not dealt with any kind of racism um, as a black person growing up in America. And that's why when we hear things like make America great again, and we question those things like, well, when was it great? Uh, because um, it wasn't great for black people during slavery. Um, and when they were free, they were given nothing and left to starve. Um then when they did try to prosper and stuff, a new set of laws, Jim Crow, was enacted. Um, that carried through to the 50s and 60s. And finally, there was a civil rights bill. But as you can tell, as I keep saying, for context, you know, laws don't change hearts and opinions. Um, and so have there been some strides made? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm not here to tell you that... Uh, there there haven't been in fact you know good on the fourth fifth and then the sixth generation of uh, people born after slavery who are constantly changing um the narrative of what race is in this country um one of the things i will say is that uh far too many times what happens is is that just like in slavery where majority of people did not own slaves uh, but they benefited from it uh, that's kind of the, the, the key to what's going on now with racism and stuff. There's, I'm not saying that everyone's racist, but I'm saying there are people who benefit from racist institutions and who have uh, benefited from it. And it's sort of like uh, someone who says, well, yeah, I eat meat, but I don't kill cows. Uh, you know, and so when cows are slaughtered in this inhumane, inhumane ways that they are dealt with and kept and raised and stuff, 
Um, but what you're saying is I don't care about that because I can't see it. I don't participate in it, but I do enjoy a good T-bone. Um, and racism uh, kind of comes out that way where a lot of people are like, well, I don't, I don't do anything overly racist. And, uh, you know, while we, we talk about overly racist, we talk about small things because all things matter in context. Um, and one of the small things um, is the whole uh, discussion about the N-word and uh, why it's important um, contextually to talk about that, you know, and, um, so I actually found one of the, the best explanations of why, uh, you should not, uh, say it. I don't know why you want to, but you shouldn't. Last week, Northwestern had this concert with Lil Uzi Vert. He uses the N word profusely. Mm a ton, and there was an email sent out to students who went to this concert saying, you don't have a right to use this word, which I 100% agree with. Like, I, As a white person, I don't have any right. I haven't, until reparations are paid, until there's some sort of giving back, there's no right. But what do you say to, I don't know what to do when I hear my friends using this word in a song. I don't know what to do when it's just, it's all the time. Words don't have meaning without context, okay? Um, my wife refers to me as honey. That's accepted and okay between us. If we were walking down the street together and a strange woman referred to me as honey, <laughs> that wouldn't be acceptable. The understanding is I have some sort of relationship with my wife. Hopefully I have no relationship with this strange woman. <laughs> When I was young and I used to go see my family uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, where my dad was from, they would all call him Billy. His name is William Paul Coates. Um, no one in Baltimore called him Billy. And had I referred to my father as Billy, that probably would have been a problem. That's because the relationship between myself and my dad is not the same as the relationship between my dad and his mother and his sisters who he grew up with, right? We, we understand that. Um, it's the same thing with words within the African-American community, or within any community. Uh, my wife, with her girlfriend, will use the word bitch. I do not join in. I don't you know, say, hey, I want to. I don't do that. I don't do that. And perhaps more importantly, I don't have a desire to do it. You, you understand? You know, um, a while ago, Dan Savage was going to have this uh, show that he was going to call Hey Faggot. I'm not going to yell faggot at Dan Savage. I'm just not, that's not my relationship with the LGBT community. And, and I understand that. And I'm okay with that. I don't have a desire to, you know, uh, uh, yell out the word, you know, faggot. I just don't have that. Um, the question one must ask, if, if that's accepted and normal for groups of people, we understand that, you know, it's normal, actually, for groups to use words that are derogatory in an ironic fashion. Why is there so much hand-wringing when black people do it? Um, black people are basically, you know, however you feel about it, they're not outside of the normal rules and laws for humanity. I had a, you know, a good friend who used to have this um, cabin in upstate New York, which he referred to as the white trash cabin. He was white. I would never refer to that cabin. I would never tell him I'm coming to your white trash cabin. 
I just wouldn't do that. I, and and I, you know what I mean? I think you understand why I wouldn't do it. The question one must ask is why so many white people have difficulty extending things that are basic laws, you know, of how human beings interact to black people. And I think I know why. <laughs> um, when you're white in this country, you're taught that everything belongs to you. You think you had a right to everything. You had a right to go with you. I mean, and you're conditioned this way. It's not, you know, because you, you know, your hair is a texture or your skin is light. It's the fact that the laws and the culture tell you this. You had a right to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, be however, and people just got to accommodate themselves to you. So here comes this word that, you know, you feel like you invented. <laughs> and now somebody will tell you how to use the word that you invented. You know, well, why can't I use it? Everyone else gets to use it. You know what, that's racism that I don't get to use it. You know, that's racist against me. You know, I have to inconvenience myself and, and hear this song and I can't sing along? How come I can't sing along? You know what I mean? And I think, you know, uh, uh, for white people, I think the experience of being a hip-hop fan and not being able to use the word nigga is actually very, very insightful. It will give you just a little peek into the world of what it means to be black. Because... <laughs> because to be black is to walk through the world and watch people doing things that you cannot do, that you can't join in and do. You know, and so I think there's actually a lot to be learned from refraining. And there absolutely is. There's absolutely a lot to be learned from that and relationships and stuff. And uh, I know a lot of people will say, especially when we talk about in context of the, 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 the N-word, that it's not deadly. And it's not that the, the word itself is deadly, but the idea that black people are less than, um, and that, Again, the human for that that's what that word really means, and that's why it's so offensive um and again, for relationships like well, why do I get to say it? Well, it's that relationship kind of thing um you don't get to call everybody a bitch you don't walk you don't get to walk up and uh, uh touch everybody you don't get to get it you know you, you it's, it's the relationship and context of those situations and stuff, and the overall thing is that if you know what the history of it is, why would you want to say it anyway? So, you know, I talk about all this and, um, you know, so the, the, the racism and why it's important to understand the time frame for all this, because it hasn't really been that long ago. This country wanted, it's like a lot of, uh, you know, we're a collective uh, of, of people and a lot of people want to put bad things behind them especially when they were wrong and we don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, but one of the things that we talk about that we, we, we had to acknowledge is that until you, you, you say there's a problem, you can't fix the problem. And America's really never really wanted to fix the problem, um, that it created. Um, it just doesn't want to talk about it anymore and doesn't want to be shamed or embarrassed about it. You know, a lot of people say, I don't, I've never owned slaves and stuff. Yeah. But, you benefited from the ownership of slaves and then you demonized the people once they were free. 
and you set up and so when we talk about uh institutional racism stuff within laws and law enforcement um why it's such an important thing right now there's an actor Deshaun king and i love his work and stuff and one of the things that he talks about is uh they're going around and they're trying to influence uh da races local da races and stuff because prosecutors are the ones the officers are the ones that bring charges and um because of whatever they they feel like they're going to charge also helps influence police behavior about what crimes you know they if, if the da says hey we're not prosecuting any uh marijuana charges which has disappoint disproportionately affected the black community um and it's it's not that white people don't smoke marijuana but uh percentage wise black people are incarcerated for it more and which is now even more insulting that it is being legalized in states and should be uh, the same way that prohibition was uh, legalized and stuff. The war on drugs has always been a phony war and it was just a cover. So why we spend that much money? It was just a, a cover um, uh, for, again, institutionalized uh, policing of black communities and stuff where um, a lot of those drugs were uh, more prevalent. And you you go back and you take all that in and understand that uh, if a DA isn't uh, making charge, those kind of charges and stuff, then police have to change the way they're policing because no one's going to uh, jack you up, right, for stuff that, you know, no one's going to bring charges against. And and I just had this discussion and uh, I actually just read this article where some officers in New York uh, stopped a guy because they said that he was uh, touching, uh, fondling women. And so they stop him. And they go <clears throat> and they ask the women and women say, nope, uh, we, we were not fondled. But they persist anyway and they arrest the guy and they charge him with uh, basically it's like a felony charge of assault. He was, it took a year and he was acquitted. The DA decided to bring charges even though there was no evidence and nobody wanted to co- uh, collaborate um, the officer's assumptions. And in fact, you can actually hear the officers on tape because he left his phone recording them and stuff where they were actually talking about how uh, one of the officers was trying to get one of the women to uh, to bite, said so she wouldn't bite, because he was trying to tell her, well, he was trying to, he was looking at your purse. And, you know, go ahead and go along with this because we can get him off the streets and stuff because, he's, you know, we think he's a purse thief. And she just wouldn't go. She, said, ah, she wouldn't bite, she wouldn't bite and stuff. Um, DA races are important. The instant, the criminalization for just being black which is what you see when people call the police on black people in public spaces doing things that should be a right for everybody uh to do and you know that refrain that we talk about and using the n-word that's really the frame that black people have because at no point do you feel or feel quite comfortable doing anything because you know that a uh, uh interaction with you between you and the police could completely go sideways in fact Let's hear from D.L. Hughley, the author. We don't live in the same parts of the country. We don't have the same vocation. We don't have the same particular outlook. But where we're all the same is, men of color and women of color, is the way that we try to instill a sense of fear. You can call it respect, but it's a sense of fear at the sobering consequence of what could happen if an interaction with the policeman goes wrong. And I think it tells a lot about society 
that would expect children to act more responsible than change adults as a viable option. I think, I, I remember I watched Rodi Geniali uh, say that we should teach our children to respect the police. How about having a police department that is respectful of the public they work for? How about having a police department that is held to a, st a higher standard than the children that are supposed to be respectful? I can't, I, you know, there's a certain point when children just don't listen. Just don't listen. Should they die for that? That's what they call teenagers for. And should we accept that as a society? Is that really the best we can do to tell our children to be more responsible than the adults trained to serve their, their communities? I mean, is it? So, again, context. When you look at where this country has been and its, and its relationship with black people, the laws that it's enacted uh, to deny black freedom and privilege, how it did not protect black people um, in the 1900s from lynchings and other things, and how Jim Crow made it harder for black people to attain wealth, uh, to attain anything really, um, and the attitudes even leading up to 1964 when civil rights were eventually passed for black people. But then you turn around and go, well, that's not my problem. And that's not that long ago. Again, my mom was born in 1950s, the early 1950s. And uh, so she's still alive. So she still experienced all that. So for you now to tell me that my mom who's six something years old uh, should forget those attitudes in those conditions and that because uh, we say so as James Baldwin says you want people to be civil and believe a thing without evidence that that thing is real and that thing that we're talking about is that we have been united there are equal rights and people are treated uh, fairly um, when there's weekly tapes of people who are having uh, organizations weaponized against them um, to ensure that the same behaviors that we're talking about from 1863 are still working in 2018. What's the way forward? How do we get over this? Well, actually, it's kind of one of those kind of things where it does get better generation by generation. It really does. Um, unfortunately, as I brought up, and for a reason, when you look at 153 years, you're only talking about the lifespan of two 80-year-olds. I would have you guess <laughs> the age of people that are in our Congress. They're not 40. They're not 30 years old, and they're not 20 years old. They're not in this fourth generation away. A lot of people that run our government are in their 70s, almost, imagine this, 80 years old. They would have been around for their grandparents and their thoughts and how they perceive how our relationships are. And when you look at institutions um, in higher federal government, even state governments and stuff, they are disproportionate to the way that our demographics now look. So how do we move forward? Uh, we vote, uh, and not just for the next American Idol. 
Uh, I'm not really sure <laughs> sure that show's still on. I, I, I never really watch it. Uh, but uh, I do know that when it comes to Dancing the Stars and other reality stuff, uh, we have way more people that participate in those things than we do in actual elections. Um, so we vote. And what we're voting for is we're voting for a for people who share a platform of equality, uh, for people who are in these later stages, fourth, fifth generation people, and we let some of our older people and their great ideas, we let them move on. Um, the idea that, I mean, because quite honestly, a lot of these people are the same age as your, your grandparents, and you've seen your grandparents operate stuff. Uh, and these are the people who are trying to dictate your laws and stuff. Uh, there's a fresh batch of new ideas out there, and we stop working off of name recognition. We start working off of what people are actually doing and contributing to, uh, especially when it comes to, especially in our community, the black community, um, when it comes to issues of race and uh, racism and stuff and how they're institutionally linked to American systems. Um we we do that uh as we saw in the alabama race that uh what swung that race was minority voting especially from women um minority women so we get out we vote um we continue to do things when people say things and they, they dog whistle chicago and stuff uh believe me there are plenty of town halls uh, there are plenty of marches and stuff and just because the media doesn't cover it because it's not newsworthy that black people don't want other black people to kill each other um, doesn't mean they're not going on and that we, uh, we're we not doing those things in our community we are, we're addressing those things we've continued to address those things since 1863 when we had nothing and what was the plan to move forward to have something to pass down that's why you have people like LeBron James who are giving back with his eye uh, promise school when uh, you have uh, entertainers, because that's how when you talk about black wealth and median, uh, uh, the median wealth, you know, those are uh, the higher echelon payers out there. Um, and and uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce and Jay-Z on one of his latest records, 4-4 albums, that when he's talking about generational wealth and that become a, a real big buzzword for black people for a long time. But it really is important um, how that is, uh, how that works. Uh, for uh, people in their future and the telltale signs of how people are successful and stuff when they're set up for success. You know, unfortunately, uh, too many people have a struggle story and too many people want one and they invent their own struggle story and trying to change mentalities and stuff. I mean, it just takes a while. Um, you know, even Kanye West has walked back uh, his comments about slavery being a choice because somebody sat down and probably had the same talk with him and explained to him the time frame, what we're talking about, the institutions, the things that were put in place, and why it was such a big deal. But again, Jermaine, how do we move forward? We educate, we uplift each other, we stop trying to, we, we create jobs within our own community. Uh, one of the things that uh, has really taken the community back a little bit is the fact that uh, we depend too much on other groups to support us. Uh, if you look at other immigrants and stuff to this country, other minorities in this country and stuff, one of the things that they do and it should be modeled throughout the black community is that they create job opportunities for their family and themselves 
in their communities and stuff, and they don't so much look outside uh, for other people to help them out. Because we do have the uh, we do have a a lot of talent uh, and a lot of intelligence within our own community, and um, the fact that we kind of make things beneath us because and it, it does go back to the whole uh, servitude attitude that a lot of people don't want to be in service uh, industries because of that. Uh, but, um, as I talk about, you know, myself, my vision for real estate and stuff and being able to create jobs through real estate, um, which is one of the single greatest creator of, uh, jobs and income because home ownership, uh, is one of those things that's connected to almost all facets of life, uh, from insuring to repairing, uh, to improving, uh, all those things uh, deal with home ownership and stuff. So whether it's a mentorship program uh, for people in actual dealing with real estate or dealing with the services surrounding and connected to real estate, uh, that's one of those ways in our communities we can still have to build back, build things back up. And once you have that economic base and that educational base and stuff, a lot of those things, you know, what we're talking about in communities for crime and stuff will automatically and naturally decrease because of those things that live in annual ways that King talked about this radicalized that now <clears throat> I guess we fall into the, the uh, they taught the uh, category of social democracy uh, <clears throat> or some people say just plain old socialism and which is a whole nother podcast about how we're okay with giving welfare to rich people um, because your favorite sports team gets welfare because billionaires don't build their own stadiums uh, the cities that they come to do, uh, Amazon has been pimping out, uh, cities across the, uh, United States, um, with the idea that they might bring a new, uh, headquarters to their city and stuff. And cities are falling over backwards to give Amazon, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, breaks and cuts and incentives to build something that he was going to build anyway. And <laughs> they're going to do it with funded money uh, from their citizens, welfare. Um, so I don't like welfare either, and I just think that we need to stop giving it to rich people too in certain organizations. Uh, our banks who we build out, our auto industry who we build out, still that they, they receive social welfare. I know I said a word, uh, but when we talk about things like uh, Medicaid and Medicare for all and stuff, that's too much. That's a bridge too far and stuff. Um. And so this all wraps back into my, you know, racism in America and stuff and why it's important to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, we don't address the problem. We can never get better with it and stuff. Um, and I don't expect this podcast uh, to necessarily change anybody's hearts or minds uh, because this is even a law and laws can't do that. What I do expect is um, for you to be able to take some talking points away from this maybe some clips, maybe do some research of your own to look back and say to yourself that we can be better people. Um, people are not who they seem to be based on media coverage. Um, it's important to know people as individuals. It's important to get out here and try to make the world a better place. As we go back to uh, the beginning when we talked about Senator McCain and the discourse of I respect the man, not always his politics, but I respect the man and what he tried to do and stuff. 
Um, I think that's where we as a people need to be that we respect each other. We don't always have to agree, but we have that respect for each other that we understand that our human rights are just that human rights and not race rights. I have, uh, served for over 20 years in the military. Um, not necessarily, um, because I thought that America was the greatest country in the world, but I thought it had the potential to be. I think that we have the potential to have, if anyone has the opportunity uh, to have a more utopian society, it's got to be us. I've been to other places, and I just don't think that, you know, really they're as close. Um, but it starts with us. It starts now. And uh, I'm happy to be here, and uh, I look forward to what the fifth and sixth generations and what it is 100 years from now in this country for our relationships. Look, man, it's been a long episode. Uh, Thanks for hanging there with me. Uh, I somehow was able to pull off all my clips. (laughs) I was somehow able to try to keep this coherent thread and stuff, you know, um, if you got questions and I'm sure you got comments, uh, hit me up at the website, www.themaineventpodcast.com. Check me out on my social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Watch them Twitter fingers. You can come see videos of, uh, me dropping. I retweet a lot of stuff. Um, none of the, uh, interviews or content using this podcast are mine. I don't care. I hope it blows up big enough to somebody would actually say something to me. Uh, but Hey, look, I love you all. I can't wait to see you next week and stuff until then. This has been another great episode of the main event. Hey, love, peace and chicken grease. Subscribe, like share. It's your boy. Let's get ready to rumble. See you next week. <laughs>